Strachan and Bell together. There's Cooper breaking through. A chance now. This will be the fourth goal for Aberdeen. Cooper puts it in with tremendous relish. Well, suddenly it's become a rout. Of course, when things are going wrong against you, you don't get the breaks of the ball. Cooper in with Stewart. He didn't really know where the ball was, but he got the break. And as you say, it's a schoolboy's dream being able to take your time, knowing that really all you've got to do is crack it into the back of the net. So hello and welcome to the latest Here We Go podcast. On tonight's show we'll look back at the last week of SPFL fixtures which closed out our pre-split programme and then focus on Sunday's Scottish Cup semi-final with Celtic. Now joining me to do that we have a fine panel of guests. Starting off with a man we have on loan from another Scottish football podcast. Now does it benefit us to develop podcasters for other stronger podcasts? Who knows, but it's a delight to welcome occasional terrorist dweller Tom Watt to the show. Hi Tom, how are you? Very good, thank you very much. Excellent. Then a heavyweight matchup at Hamden requires a top-ranked guest to do it justice, so it's a great pleasure to have Derek Ray back with us again. Hi Derek, thanks for coming on. It's a pleasure, Richard, talking to you from my home area now, just outside Boston, where I'm delighted to say spring appears to be on the way. <laughs> now obviously you're not uh, working directly in the SBFL anymore, but you're obviously still keeping pretty close tabs, aren't you? Yeah, as, as closely as I can, I do follow it. I don't get to watch game in game out the way I did when I was working on uh, the SPFL for BT Sport but yeah certainly Twitter is great that way and, and highlights and red TV and all the rest of it so yeah on we go yeah what's the what's the TV deal in the States like these days do we do we actually have a formal one well there is a TV deal now uh, which was put in place uh, at the end of last season and then there was a slight pause at the beginning of this campaign while the, the right situation got clarified and now it's in place again, but it's a streaming deal only, right. uh, thanks to a company called Bleacher Report. So I think it works for people who are very you know heavily invested in the league. The downside of it is there's not a great deal of neutral interest, and of course it gets dwarfed by the, the bigger leagues, most notably the, the Premier League. But for people who, who are fans of particular Scottish clubs, uh, then there is a way of, of following it. So, so from that point of view, it's good. Yeah, it's a shame, isn't it? Because obviously, yeah, the, the fervent fans have their own club sites, I'm sure, to keep track of things, Red TV, as you say. But it's, it's never going to be able to grow a neutral audience just on a, a small streaming site, you imagine. Yeah, I think that's probably the reality, to be honest, for most leagues out with the very biggest. Uh, you know, for example, uh, ESPN Plus, I used to work for ESPN, uh, they now have this service that entails paying, I think it's about $5 a month, but for that you get countless leagues such as the Dutch Eredivisie, the Championship from England, um, a lot of MLS content, um, the German Cup. There's various other properties they have and it's all bundled together. So I think that that is the future just because uh, mainstream TV is focusing so heavily on the Premier League above all else. Well, as I say, it's a treat to have you on. And completing our panel tonight, probably breaking the terms of his restraining order, it's Martin Clunas. Martin, are you all set for Hamden next week? I am, yeah, Richard. I mean, um, 
I know we've had the international break and I know you've not been feeling well, I've not been feeling great either, so we've extended the international break. But no, don't pretend you haven't missed me. Mm. Uh, if, uh, if all that weren't enough, uh, we've also got the one-man Barcelona Aberdeen Supporters Club that is Graham Hunter dropping in later on to give us a sort of state of the union on the dons this season. But first, a quick run through some of the topics to emerge from yet another concentrated week of SPFL action. Uh, Tynecastle last Saturday, we started well, Tom, but we finished very badly indeed. It's actually our first defeat from a winning position in the league for nearly three years. It's been a strength of ours to be front-running, but that second half, it was such a self-inflicted defeat, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. I mean, we, we started very well, I think. Um, one of the features of the season has been perhaps that we've not not always scored when we've been on top. We got one, we had opportunities to, to get further ahead, and I think we'd completely outthought Hearts. Um, they'd set up with the back three, which they'd not always been that comfortable with this season, and, and the wing backs. And I think they'd tried to, Craig Levine had tried to stretch play, and what had ended up happening is, is just Chinny and Ferguson completely dominated them in the middle of the park. And we looked, at half time, looked very comfortable, and it was just going to be a case of seeing the game out, if not adding to that score and making it a little bit more comfortable. Um, in the second half, I think we were a bit naive. We we didn't start well anyway, but we also kind of assumed that Hearts would do something similar to they had in the first half. And Craig Levine doesn't need a huge amount of encouragement always to go long and, and bypass the midfield, and that's what he did. And uh, given that our all our productive play was coming through um, the the endeavour of Shinny and, and Ferguson in the middle, who were completely controlling things, cutting them out completely caused us suddenly. Uh, no end of problems. Uh, and APS is a, is a very unpredictable player up front, and we didn't really know what to do with him because they were hitting him with absolutely everything, and our defence just didn't really cope with it at all. Yeah, there was, there was a couple of slight tactical tweaks. It wasn't just that they were going long, Martin. They also pushed up much higher up, pushed the wingers up much higher up in our fullbacks, so that Ferguson, in particular, when he was dropping deep to get the ball, didn't have that easy out ball. But you know, it's often been an accusation levelled against us that we're quite one-dimensional, particularly with Sam Cosgrove on the team. But, but Hearts were, in, were pretty much one-dimensional that second half. And the worry has to be that in a league like the SPFL, when you expect your defenders to be able to cope with that barrage, we absolutely didn't. No, we didn't. I think, I think just very, very briefly, if you look at what, um, what Hibbs did yesterday, uh, where they understood that that was coming, and they understood that if you could, you know, if you can stifle all other options with Hearts, then it's inevitable they're going to start playing these long balls. I felt kind of bad for Costa McKenna because I don't think they, no, they shouldn't really need help to deal with that one guy because that was Ekpies who was their kind of was their outlet, um, and that was the, that was the target man. And he's a, he's like a he's a weird one to watch. He's one of these guys who is kind of he's really awkward to watch. He's just he's just this kind of big lump up front. That seems to, they seem to find him with with everything, and then that's and then people feed off of that. The, the second goal was an, was an atrocious one to lose. Like you say, Richard, no, they they don't need any encouragement to go long. So, you, I mean, I would like to think that they were prepared for that from the outset. Um, they didn't really, you no, know, Hearts didn't start the game just absolutely hoofing the ball up all the time. Um, but you would think that you know guys were you know. Hundreds of games under the belt, like like Andy Considine, should, should should know that's coming. He should be able to cope with it, despite the fact because Nick Pierce, you know, he's a he's a mid level SPFL player. You know, he's not 
he's not certainly not a world world beater. Uh, but it was it was really it was kind of worrying to see that a very highly rated defender like McKenna and. And Alconstantine with so much experience under his butt, they just they had no answer for it. Derek, cliche time here, but Tynecastle was never going to be a particularly easy place to go. However, it's half time last week. The home support, you know, booing their own team off. Very disappointing from an Aberdeen perspective that a couple of errors at the start of that second half just allowed the crowd back into it and allowed them to really get behind their team. And it was something that Derek McInnes actually made comment of afterwards. And in that sort of atmosphere. It's about having the right mindset. It's about having the mentality to overcome a situation like that, isn't it? Yeah, I think Derek McInnes said himself, didn't he, that halftime came at a good time for Hearts and at a bad time for Aberdeen. And that was obviously the case. <laughs> Aberdeen were the better team in the first half. And I was thinking, admittedly, I haven't been to Tynecastle in the last couple of years, but when I was covering matches there regularly, I used to always think this is a place that has a, a home advantage about it. It's not the case with every single ground. Uh, in fact, it could sometimes be a liability, as I'm sure we'll, we'll get to in a, in a future discussion <laughs> here. But um, I, I think that when hearts are trailing, and even if they're playing badly, um, the crowd tend to get behind them. You know, okay, they were booing them in, in, in this case, but uh, if they sense that something good is happening, they'll get behind them. And, and the direct football almost seems to play into that sort of sense of, of how Hearts fans would like to see things go. And this seemed to be the case here. I do wonder if Aberdeen a little bit were guilty of, of getting into management mode, which um, doesn't seem to have been a problem so much recently, but I remember it was a problem a few years ago, uh, having leads and then sort of overly managing the situation and paying the price. But undoubtedly a very unlucky defeat, no two ways about that. But it can happen at Tynecastle to anyone. Yeah, we're going to run through the games quite quickly, which is a shame really, because there were quite a few strands coming out of that, and there, were, there was, I think, a deep frustration amongst the Aberdeen support that we'd gone to a side who were not in good form, and we'd looked in command of a situation and let it slip, because as I say, that, that has been a strength of ours lately. Coming up to the midweek game against Motherwell on Wednesday, I was really... <laughs> Not, I was struggling to find a way we were going to win that. But before we get into conversation about the Motherwell game itself, Derek in particular, you wrote an article for the programme on Wednesday, and it was about your recent trip to uh, Regensburg. Any followers of you on Twitter will know that uh, I think that one of the great things about you, Derek, is that you, you're still very much in touch with how it is to be a football supporter. You like to actually you know, go to games, experience the fan experience, particularly German football you have a real interest in. And uh, one of the games you went to was a second division game involving Regensburg. Now, Regensburg, are, uh, as a city, is twinned with Aberdeen. And uh, you reckon that should be a natural link-up between the clubs? Yeah, well, let me tell you the story, first of all. Uh, as you've rightly said, Richard, uh, I do spend a lot of time in Germany, even though I live here in Boston and Massachusetts in the USA now, I work for the Bundesliga's World Feed. And what I try to do, and I do think it's important as a commentator, is go to games when I'm not working in Germany. And that often means second division, third division, even further down the divisions, the fourth division set up, the regional leagues. But in the second division specifically, I've wanted to go to, to Regensburg for a while. Uh, and that really is because it's been Aberdeen's twin city since 1955. I can remember as a young German student in the 1980s, there was always a, a Regensburg week in Aberdeen. And uh, for most people, uh, it came down to a night at the Duffy Park when 
uh, German beer was served and uh, people from Regensburg would wander around in traditional Bavarian costumes. And I always sort of thought, I'd love to go there. And uh, as I say, it's passed me by because it's, it's not difficult to get to, but it's slightly off the map. It's in the southeast of Germany. It's not far from the Czech border. Uh, but it's a beautiful place. I went there um, just a couple of weeks ago. I'd been at the, the Frankfurt-Nuremberg game on the Sunday and took the train down to Regensburg. They had a home game against Kreuterfeuer. Now, it's relatively new for Regensburg to be in the second division. And when I first raised this on Twitter a few months ago, a couple of Aberdeen fans seemed very interested. A few said, well, they're in the second division. That's not good enough. We're in the top division. Let's wait till they're in the Bundesliga. But the point about that is once a team becomes a Bundesliga team, then they become fashionable and people latch onto it. The second division, to be honest, is pretty comparable to, to our league in Scotland. I mean, standard-wise... Uh, for the most part, attendances-wise. Um, and, you know, so from that point of view, that there is a, a certain kind of um, uh, unity of purpose. Um, they play in red and white. Uh, they're from Aberdeen's oldest twin city, and they're really getting their act together. And they're now established as a second division team. In fact, the result this past week means they will be playing in the second division next season. And when you play in the second division in Germany, this season you've had teams like Hamburg and Köln, and you've also got big clubs like Union Berlin, who are, who are one of the, the sort of the, the, the favourites of people who like to do the ground hopping thing around Europe. Dynamo Dresden, who, who attract very big crowds. Um, you know, so, so the second division in Germany is, is a, a, you know, a very attractive brand of football. Um, so I went to the, to the stadium, and this was only opened a couple of years ago. It's actually a municipal stadium, which they rent from the, the municipality. But, um, you know, it's, it's bedecked in red and white. Uh, it's sort of the model for for, um, for Aberdeen Stadium in many respects. It's on the outskirts, not right in the centre, but about three miles away, two and a half, three miles away. And I was just very interested to have a look at the whole setup. And um, it's beautifully done, as it is throughout Germany. If any, any of you have, I'm sure, been to Germany for football before, straight from the, the main station, there are buses leaving about every minute, and they take you right to the stadium, drop you off at the front door, and then the same on the way back. I didn't see them at their best. They lost by two goals to nil, um, one of the few bad results they've had in recent weeks. As I say, they're, uh, they're looking as though they're going to be in the upper uh, half of the table come the end of the season. So my goal with this really is to set something in motion um, between on two levels really between fans and uh, fans so fans at Aberdeen fans at Regensburg maybe have a game once a season that is dedicated to fans from the Twin City uh, but also at club level um, you know getting the, the, the club officials together because I think there's an awful lot in common here and you know let's face it fans do like a good football trip and, and it's not uncommon now for you know, for, for Aberdeen supporters to go somewhere else, whether it's Barcelona or whether it's uh, somewhere else in Germany, whether it's Paris Saint-Germain, you name it, whether it's a, a game in England. And it's not that hard to get to. Uh, flying to Munich Airport uh, and then jump on the train. An hour or so later, you're in Regensburg. And I'll tell you, it's one of the most beautiful cities you will ever visit. It's in the classical German style um, you know, a pure Altstadt, as they say, and highly recommend it. So, um, so yeah, apologies for taking up so much time talking about Regensburg and Aberdeen, but I do think that there's a, a, a superb football trip awaiting any Aberdeen fan who um, decides to embark upon that. No, it sounds like it certainly would be, and absolutely, German football, the German fan experience often hails a, a, as a model to which Scotland can aspire to. And particularly with a new stadium, uh, we can debate the rights and wrongs and the weathers and wherefores of if that will come to fruition or not. But yeah, and, and, and actually, just on that one quickly, Richard, 
on the, the stadium and on the fans, what really um, stands out when you go there, and this is true of most uh, German grounds, but particularly in Regensburg, they have a standing section, so the equivalent of the beach end, if you like, and it is always full. That's where everybody wants to go, and they make just an absolute din from start to finish, and uh, they really get behind their side, and to say it's become very difficult to get tickets for that standing section, and it's dirt cheap as well. It's uh, you know somewhere in the region of you know, 12... 12, 13 euros to, to stand there. So I think that's something that Aberdeen ought to be studying um, with the, the new stadium in mind. This question is going to lend itself to uh, to maybe overgeneralisation, Derek. But what have what did Germany do right that Scottish the, the Scottish fan experience just gets so wrong? I think a number of things. I think it starts with um, how you get to the game. And I mentioned earlier the public transport and how easy that is. You know, we sort of think about it with, with the Aberdeen Stadium. I've heard people say, oh, it's going to be a hassle to get there. But it shouldn't really be a hassle. If it's done properly, it can be all part of the day. You know, where where you meet, how swiftly um, you're taken to the stadium. And then even just little things like, um, you know, walking around the stadium and, and what's there, whether it's fan shops, whether it's other activities. They don't tend to do the other activities in Germany so much. It's enough for people just to sort of meet their friends. But, but then I think in the sort of the 45 minutes or so leading up to the game, I think that's where they do it a lot better than in Scotland. There is always um, what they call a, a stadium TV service uh, so that you have a, a person with a microphone you know, interviewing people, but it's all on a big screen so that people inside the stadium can see what's being said. And it just sort of builds you up to the game in, in the right way. Uh, and then, as I say, you have the standing section and, and, and they're belting out their, uh, their various songs. And um, just by the time kickoff comes around, you feel as though you're, you're ready for kickoff and it's not a sort of a, OK, here we go again, an, another game. So um, I, I think it's sometimes it's just very simple the way they do that in Germany. That, that there's no great sort of hoopla, but it's, it's organised and it's thought through. I'm not saying that isn't the case in Scotland, but I think it's, it's something that, that's worth studying. Yeah, I'm not going to claim to be a football ground topper. My first experience, my, my probably only uh, couple of experiences of German football have been with the Dons. Um, first uh, of all, Hertha Berlin in 2000. And yeah, you're absolutely right to say that the cost of the match ticket allowed you transport around the whole of Berlin, which is obviously quite an extensive <laughs> extensive area. I think yep. it was all we used it to actually get to the airport that evening. And uh, yeah, you, you have a whole area outside the ground. Obviously, it's an Olympia Stadium in Berlin. It's an amazing stadium, but you've got the whole walk up to the ground in which you know people are hanging out, just eating their breakfast, drinking their beer. And, you know, in relative friendly circumstances. I wonder culturally, Tom, if you can really see a sort of home and away support able to mingle in a Scottish stadium in the, in the way that uh, they might do in Germany? Uh, uh, do you want a long or a short answer? <laughs> Let's go <laughs> long, we can always edit you. <laughs> okay, well, the, the short answer is I, I, I don't see it in the same way as they, they do in, in a lot of countries. I mean, in, in a lot of countries around Europe and certainly in North America, the fan experience is partisan in the same you know, it, it, people care about their support in the same way, but it's not unusual to be not just mingling in around the stadium, but, you know, sitting together in, in the stands. I don't think we have that in Scotland. I'm not sure. Certainly in the stands, people would want that. Um, but I think there are definitely lessons to learn around how clubs, uh, from, from the German experience, about, about making it an experience beyond the beyond just the match, making it, uh, you know, turn up, 
to the game, and there, you know, like Derek says, there there are um, uh, you know, shops, and there are food carts, and there is a, always a, a beer section, and it's about much more than just turning up, paying your money, watching the game, and then leaving. It's about making a day out of it. And you know, f- football in football in Scotland is expensive by necessity. We don't have a huge uh, TV deal the way that many countries around the world do. But we can do an awful lot more on the day to make it feel like it's worthwhile for families to come along, for people to bring friends, for people to to go for the first time, and to make it much more of that kind of. First timer friendly experience the way that the, the Germans support gets so right. Well, it's interesting that you bring up the US there, uh, Martin. Obviously, this week it was confirmed that uh, there'll be another US businessman. Well, the other guy isn't really a US businessman. He's Dave Pormack, who's, who's from here, obviously. But Tom Crotty was added to the board. He's been a shareholder for quite a while. He's put over a million pounds into the club. Uh, but again, here, here are two guys, and Dave Cormack and Tom Crotty, who will, who will be fully used to the American fan experience and how they go about marketing their football. So we can surely expect to see elements of that in any new build, can't we? No, I've spoken to a couple of friends that are like involved with the community trust, and I know that they're looking for things to, things to do at the games, before the games, to try and kind of get people to come a bit earlier. So there is, the, the club are at least looking at trying to get something there. You know, rather than turning up at twenty to three, quarter to three um, on a Saturday afternoon, they, they want people maybe to come to come an hour early, and that's and that's admirable. But it needs to be, I suppose, it needs to be the right things. I don't think we will ever get to a stage where we'll be sitting. You no, know, home and away fans will be sitting in the same section. I think that that Scott, this the culture in Scotland is long past that. Um, but there are certainly other things that we could, we, our league can learn from around the world, and I think we should be looking at it and, you know. As much as we you know, we've seen all the social media clips of the of the fans in the USA, and we've all had a good laugh at some of the chances stuff. They probably they probably do, do get quite a lot of things right. I mean, but there are certainly things that we could look at other leagues, and we can learn from. And having these guys who are who are you no know, based in another country, they can come in with a fresh set of eyes because. Not ju- and this isn't just a, isn't just a shot at Stuart Mill. You look at all the chairmen around the leagues. In terms of fresh ideas, the game has been stagnant for a little bit of a, a little bit of a while now, um, and it ne- something you know needs to be to give it a shot in the arm. Yeah, I mean, just on the back of, of what Martin and what Tom have said, um, I think that's right. I, I agree with pretty much everything you've said there. Um, the one thing that strikes me is when I speak to and I do speak to a lot of Scots who go to Germany for a one-off occasion, you know, whether it's Hertha, whether it's Bayern, whether it's Dortmund, whether it's a smaller club. And you know what they, they say when they come back? They say, what a great day that was. <laughs> and they're not just talking about the game. They're talking about the whole day from start to finish. Um, they just say it's so memorable, the, the whole thing. And that's what I think in Scotland we, we, we need to try to get right. Um, you know, creating some sort of walk so that when you, you know, these, these venues now are going to be out of necessity, not in the city centre. They're going to be further out. So you've got to make that memorable in, in some way. And that means creating some sort of walk. My favourite one is actually in Frankfurt, where you, you get off the train, you've got to walk up about 15 minutes through this thick forest. Mm-hmm. And what they do is they lay out this, this whole sort of, um, sort of football street that has, um, and obviously the, the licensing laws are different in different countries that has, you know, beer vendors, uh, German sausage vendors, uh, you know, uh, memorabilia, uh, kits to buy, hats, scarves, all that. But it sort of goes on for, 
you know, for, for several hundred yards. And it's just a great place to congregate before the game and, and meet your mates. And on MLS, um, I was lucky enough to commentate on the opening match of the season in Los Angeles, the LA Galaxy and the Chicago Fire. And it was my first MLS game for almost 20 years as a commentator. And my goodness, what a difference. The atmosphere was electric. I mean, really was bouncy. And um, now that's maybe not the case at every single game, but I think that has come a long way. So there's no doubt, doubt about it. Dave Cormack and Tom Crotty will come in having seen a lot of that. And um, the thing is to bring the best to the, the situation and, and this new stadium, because it should be special. It shouldn't just be, OK, here we are in a new stadium. It should actually feel quite different. Um, and, and just in, in Germany, visiting fans and home fans are never together during the game. The visiting section is always distinct and they sort of shout at each other, the, the two um, ultras, as they, as they call them, the two sets of ultras. But what is refreshing is when you go on these buses that I spoke about or, or undergrounds, um, then they are mixed. So the yeah. fans of the home team and the away team just go to the game together and sometimes there's a bit of banter, sometimes they ignore each other, but there's, there's never any aggro. Well, as you know yourself, Derek, there's that obviously if you go to Olympia Stadia, there is a uh, the walk from the underground station there to the yep. to the sort of uh, walkway ahead of the stadium is also through a forested area, and it must just be a cultural thing. But I was thinking, you know, if this was in Scotland, there'd be so many incidents in this area. There'd be so many, uh, so many yeah. uh, acts of violence will be committed in that area. But uh, again, that's that's just a sort of maybe being brought up in the eighties in Scotland. Uh, just what made me think of that. But no, it's certainly a very interesting conversation. I mean, obviously, you've had feedback from the support. What about, uh, have you had any feedback from the board at all on um, your article? I've not pushed it with with anybody at board level yet, but um, what I wanted to do was write the piece, just, you know, while it was fresh in my memory, and then, you know, have a word with with Duncan or or, or whoever wants to to have a look at it. I I just think it's in everyone's interest to to try to, to forge this link, and... I've got some people at the Regensburg end um, on the fan side um, who express an interest because they know about the, the, the twin link. As I say, it's, it's the oldest link between twin cities um, uh, in this particular group. Aberdeen does have a number of other twin cities and um, just seems to be nothing has ever been done about it. And now you have two, two football teams, both who wear red and white, both who uh, are in sort of similar positions with, uh, with grounds. Uh, and both playing a pretty good level of football with similar attendances. So, so let's hope that in years ahead we'll have Regensburg fans uh, coming to Aberdeen and vice versa. Yeah, well, it's certainly an interesting topic. And if anybody uh, does choose to make the the trip to to Regensburg on the on the back of Derek's column, then do let us know. But moving on to the game on Wednesday, uh, I mean, we won, Martin. We should be grateful for that, but. The home form this season, such an Achilles heel for us. Fifth best out of the whole Premier League. Four points fewer from our home games in Livingston. It's not been good, has it? No, it really hasn't. Um, like, I mean, I think you said, like you said earlier on, I wasn't really, you know, I wasn't very confident going to the game. Um, Motherwell are a little bit of a different, they're a different animal than they used to be. You know, they actually, you know, they play a bit of, they play a bit of football. They're a lot... They're a lot easier on the eye, shall we say, than they used to be. Um, and I, so I figured, I did figure we'd have quite a tough game. Um, it was, no, I mean, it was an interesting, it wasn't, it wasn't a classic. It's certainly not one of those games, you know, we'll, you'll ever rewatch um, in 10 years' time. Uh, but just, there's there's something I think that, you no, know, I, I know there was kind of rumblings of, you know, that you know, people seem to think that McInnes was having a, had a pop at the, was having a pop at the home fans about you know kind of the atmosphere at home and things like that. There's something I think there's just there's something this season that where we just haven't clicked at home. 
Um, I know that teams will come and they will try and sit in against us, uh, but you know we've been we've been second in the league for the last few seasons now. We should be a, we should be a, we are aware of this. We should be able to deal with this. Um, and this season in particular, I just think that we've we've really struggled to kind of to break sides down and to to create the chances. Um, you know, I know. I'm sure that we'll discuss Greg Stewart at some point. Um, you know, he he hasn't been able to do it since he's been back on loan here. Um, Niall McGinn you know, was excellent. No, an, quite an excellent goal he scored at the end of the game. Um, he's kind of been hot and cold this season as well. It just seems to be that creatively we've not been doing the right things this year, which at home um, is on, is the kind of thing that stops us. And you know, with that terrible run we went on, it was just it was it was really worrying. And, you know, being fifth best in the league, when we've got aspirations of, and quite rightly aspirations of being this, you know, finishing, well, we we all want to win the league, of course, but definite aspirations of finishing second. Um, that kind of that home form is just inexcusable, um, and I think it is just that we, there's a problem at home where we find it hard to to break down teams who won't perhaps commit more than one man up front. What about yourself, Tom? I mean, do you think it is the personnel, the lack of the fabled number 10, which we've really discussed most of the season, or is it um, more about the, the way in which we set ourselves up at home? Like anything like that, there's a number number of reasons for it. I think definitely we, we have struggled to break teams down more this season than previously. I mean, we, we do have a young team, and I think um, when things aren't going quite so well, uh, there might be added pressure, there might be added nerves. But if you look at where we've... Kind of, we, we don't have the right player or a settled player. Like we don't have a, we, we haven't really had a real number ten um, all season. Greg Stewart hasn't worked out the way we thought he would. Um, we, we, you know, we went most of the first half of the season without someone obvious there, and we're kind of trying to play someone like Stevie May off of uh, Cosgrove. We haven't had a proper right back with respect to Don Ball, who I think has been better than most expected since he came in. Um, but he, he's not the dynamic right back that, that um, Logan can be. And we've had problems with the consistency on with with the wingers. Uh, uh, you know, uh, said that uh, Niall McGinn's been hot and cold. He's been struggling with with an injury. Uh, Derek McKenna said recently that he's he's been struggling with an injury. Um, Conor McLean has obviously come in and had had his moments and finally seems to have been, certainly since January, the the, the standout player, attacking-wise anyway. And Gary McKay-Stevens just kind of flattered to deceive, I think, this season. So that there's been real consistency problems around these key attacking areas. And the way that we play with trying to get the ball wide, trying to work our way into the box, trying to put balls across the box, you don't just need one attacking threat to occupy people because people can easily double up on whoever the one attacking threat is. And in previous seasons, we've had at least three, if not four or five, obvious attacking threats from from wider areas, a player that are, that are able to shift things around. This season, even when we're playing really well, it's less, you know, it's more like two or three of those. And I think that um, that's meant that teams can sit in against us. And we've been more reliant on, we've kind of needed more from Shinny and Ferguson, who I think are probably better all-round footballers than we've had in the the kind of deeper-lying midfield positions than we've had in a while. But we've needed more from them than we might have in previous seasons. And it does mean that teams can sit in a bit more, they can hit us on the break a bit more. Um, And you get results like, particularly the, the, the run 
you know, the Hamilton, St Mirren, Livingston games when, I, I mean, against Hamilton, we just were never at the races. St Mirren, we managed to get ourselves back into it and couldn't, couldn't find an extra, another goal. And the Livy game, we just couldn't find a, a second gear, really. And I think all of those come down to just slight, slightly having square pegs and round holes and slightly not just knowing quite how we're trying to set up with, with, the, with the personnel that we have. I want to just touch Derek on Lam again because I think there's so much focus when a guy who's been with the club for a number of years and you see it with Andy Consoline as well and you've seen it with other players who've been here a while. There's so much focus on what he can't do or doesn't do very well and it's fair to say that he's never been entirely consistent because if he was he wouldn't be anywhere near Aberdeen or the SPFL. But during his first spell at the club he was one of the best players in the league repeatedly season upon season. I think it's about time we acknowledge the strengths he does bring to our play. Uh, I mean, that the goal which sealed the game on uh, Wednesday, I, I doubt that anybody else in our team would have been able to, to score that one. No, that's probably a fair comment. Uh, you know, Niall McGinn, I've always seen him as that sort of potential match winner, and you're right, he doesn't do it game in, game out, he never has. Um, but I was actually with a, a Northern <coughs> Ireland colleague just recently, and we got to talking about various things um, that we had in common, and one of them was Niall McGinn, funnily enough. And, you know, he said to me, he said, ah, oh, he said, you know, for me, Niall McGinn is, is just uh, it's just a real talent, and, and he's somebody as a Northern Ireland fan who I absolutely put on a pedestal. And I think maybe at Aberdeen sometimes, um, you know, the, the, the old saying, familiarity uh, breeds contempt rather than content in this case. And I think that he's been around the scene for a while at two spells, and, and you do sort of take it for granted a little bit. But I've always enjoyed what he's brought. You know, you're right, if, if he were that extra quality player, then he would have gone to a higher level of football. But he hasn't. Uh, I think he's felt comfortable at Aberdeen. But that sort of player in that sort of position, you're rarely going to get those sort of 8 out of 10 performances week in, week out. But uh, good that he did it against Motherwell. Um, you know, that game was always going to be a little bit difficult, given the poor home record. And... I don't think it's unique to Aberdeen. I, I see this in football around the world, that certain teams at certain times just have difficulty at home because of playing styles and because of, um, as we've said, sometimes the lack of a playmaker or because some teams are just set up better to play away from home, to, to maybe play more of a sitting and, and counter-attacking game uh, or winning the ball back quickly and then counter-attacking. And um, away teams can make it difficult. And, uh, and sometimes there's not an awful lot you can you can do to logically explain it away, but, but certainly the win was much needed. Just on, on Niall McGinn, I, I really, I mean, I, I was thinking, looking at this the other day, by my records, Niall McGinn has 44 league assists for us and what, 65-ish goals. So at some point in the next year, six months, he'll hit 50 goals and have, he'll have 50 goals and 50 assists for Aberdeen. Now, records pre-2000 are kind of sketchy for this, but by, by my guess, I think he will be in a group of three post-war to have got 50 goals and 50 assists for Aberdeen in the league with Gordon Strachan, Ian Jess and probably Mark McGee. Now, that's not a bad club to be in. <laughs> no, it really and, isn't. And he was, he, was, he was helped by... It was, it was during Craig Brown's time in charge, wasn't it, when he was the centre-forward who couldn't stop scoring. He had that run of about, what, eight, eight goals in eight games at one point. 
Yeah, he's got 21 yeah. goals in his first season here. And I, I think the thing is, Martin, we, we talk about being uh, an on-and-off season, but he's still the second-top scorer in the squad this season. He's now got eight goals, nine assists, I make it. That's a bit more of a subjective number, admittedly. But every season, every full season, he's been a Pataudry. He's been in the top two for the goal scorers. Uh, it, it's just, it is consistent. It's not the level of consistency we might want him to bring, but it, he is consistent in an Aberdeen shirt. No, I, I said, I think after the, I think it was after the Queen the South, Queen the South game. I think it was. You no, know, I'm a huge fan of his. No, because because he's one of those guys who, you know, who like Derek says, is a match winner. You know, he can he, he can unlock defenses and he can do things with the ball that, you know. Not just guys in our starting eleven. There's there's guys in guys throughout the rest of the league. There's maybe there's maybe only five or six guys throughout the, throughout the league that can do what he can do with a ball when he's on his game. And so he is he is a, he is a really talented player. And you know I don't think that uh, if I'm if I'm truly honest, I don't think he's really appreciated appreciated enough. Um, and I think he gets a bit of a hard time because when he's off the boil, you know he really does go off the boil. But you know you know what it's like we're. If we're being totally honest, we're probably quite lucky to have him. Well, another guy that was brought in um, under the previous manager, under Craig Brown, signalled uh, during the week that he was going to be leaving Pataudry, as was expected, and signing for Dun United on a pre-contract. Mark Reynolds, uh, who... I think his arrival really, Tom, it, it signalled a bit of a sea change in the calibre of players that we've been after in landing. And not only that, but when he eventually signed full-time, it was like a four-and-a-half-year deal. And I remember at the time, that was a big, big deal for us. We'd been handing out one-year deals, two-year deals here and there. But this was a proper statement of intent when he when he pitched up. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I was actually working the deadline day. I was working at STV at the time. I was working the deadline day that um, that deal happened, and I got... You know, got hold of someone at Pataudry. This, this, this is the rumor mill. This is happening, and there's like, yeah, it's happening. Four and a half year deal, and it was. I mean, everyone wanted to keep him. Obviously, there'd been there'd been talk that he'd he was coming back on a on a longer term deal, but the the length of contract, the way he'd been playing, the fact that he'd been in demand elsewhere. Um, it was a momentous deal, and it laid down kind of laid down a gauntlet for for everything that we. Have done, or, or certainly did in the years subsequently. It was one of the first deals. We we subsequently went back to England quite a lot to pick up players who had either shown great potential in Scotland or had had a, a couple of good seasons and had gone down to England and for one reason or another it, it hadn't worked out. But they obviously still had talent, um, and there was a real excitement about about bringing him back. I mean, uh, an intelligent guy. Uh, I mean, there's there's lots of stories now that have, have, um, I, I didn't know, um, but only since he's left about the the charity work that he's done um, in and around Aberdeen. But you know, an intelligent guy, a, a culture defender, and with with Russell Anderson, two defenders who just complemented each other so well. Uh, they they brought the best out of each other and more. They were more than the sum of their parts. I mean, uh, Anderson had obviously been around, um, been around the block and had come back to to Aberdeen for, you know, to, to finish his career off. Reynolds took his game up to a, to a level that it hadn't been at, you know, arguably since the season that he left uh, anywhere. Um, and I mean, the, my overriding memory was their match, uh, the away match in Groningen. When uh, you know, just w- one of one of the best away trips ever, 
Um, but the the way that they played together, the way that they 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 were they were both ball playing uh, defenders. They were both intelligent. It wasn't the case of one went and headed everything away and one sat deep. Both of them were capable of, and and they just seemed to know what the other was doing. Um, an incredible partnership. I wouldn't go as far as this, you know, arguably the best for twenty five, thirty years. Um, but he, he was just a, a joy to have a, and a real Rolls Royce of a defender to to bring back a, and a key part in everything that has followed um, after some pretty dismal years, uh, you know. And uh, you know we've got to be hugely thankful for having him when we had him. And Derek, it was a bit of a gift to the incoming manager Derek McInnes that he had that centre-half partnership there and available to him at the outset. He had a lot of parts of the team to fix and to get right, and that's kind of a never-ending process, painting the fourth bridge. But centre-halves, he had two guys who at uh, SBFL level were, were were very good standard. No doubt about it. I remember watching Mark Reynolds when he was at Motherwell thinking, Aberdeen don't have anybody like this. And, of course, they had Russell, but Russell was injured a little bit around that time didn't have an obvious partner, or certainly not somebody who, as you said, could complement him or could complement him. And um, the two of them really worked so well together. I mean, what Reynolds had when he came to Aberdeen, obviously, was pace. Uh, and, you know, Russell Anderson had the, the, the know-how and the, the ability to, to think through a game. And I, and I think he, he worked well with Reynolds on that basis, because I think he, certainly early on, he did the thinking for Mark. You know, you know Mark obviously had the raw material uh, in, in, which was pace, um, but Russell had the experience and, and could you know tell him at times where he needed to be on the pitch, and I think did a good job of of, um, of making him an even better defender. Um, probably helped that Craig Brown had, had worked with him at Motherwell, and uh, so that worked out in the end for Aberdeen to have him, and and Derek McInnes very grateful to have him. And my uh, memory of Mark Reynolds is always going to be, and, and tell me if you guys remember this, uh, was a game around the, the festive period a few years ago up at Inverness, and <laughs> yes. uh, when he sustained yeah horrendous, absolutely horrendous facial injury, which I think he, he put on social media afterwards a picture of it, and I think we were all thinking, okay, he's going to be out for for a couple of weeks. So then there was another game about three days later, and lo and behold, he was straight in the starting lineup. And that's Mark Reynolds who who departed, uh, confirmed that he was departing Pataji at the end of the season uh, during the week there. Uh, finally of this uh, busy last week, Dundee at Dens Park. Uh, we always beat Dundee, and, and we did, but it was, it, for a long time it was laboured, it was a grind, but we did just enough to get over the line, and in some ways a microcosm of our season. Um, Martin, Sam Cosgrove, 20 goals. If you'd told me that in December... Well, yeah, um, you know, we're about... Well, put way, Richard, we're about to discuss... We'll be discussing the semi-final in a couple of minutes. If you'd... You know, we, we came out of that Scottish Cup semi... The Scott, um, League Cup final. Um, we're sitting on, sitting on the bus on the way back. And, the, no, if you'd turned around and said to me that Sam Cosgrove was going was to finish the season with more than 20 goals, um, I would have confiscated the bag of booze that was sitting in front of you. OK, they've not all been amazing, you know, wonderful, silky goals where he's beaten five or six men. But sometimes that doesn't matter. Um, he needs the service. He needs the help. He needs someone playing next to him to be able to get the best out of him. If, if we're honest, he's, put, he's getting the ball in the back of the net. Um, and we've we've been crying out for somebody to do that. So, you know, all credit to him. He just he just needs to keep doing it. You know, there's there's still um there's still hopefully um 
you know, a few extra game, an extra game to be added on at the end of the season if we can do the business uh, next weekend. But you know, all, all play, all fair play him because we didn't see that coming. No, that red, but that, he got that red card against Celtic uh, when he fouled Scott Brown. We thought this was what was it, twenty five grand, forty grand, whatever we paid for him. I think we pretty much all thought this was money got money down the toilet. So um, no, good on him, and let's let's hope for more. I tell you what he got that very, very few players will get in this day and age, Derek, is that he got a lot of time in that side where he wasn't scoring goals as the main striker in order to finally hit that run of form. Yeah, I mean, he's probably lucky that other players were able to chip in during that period. But, I mean, there was scant evidence that this was a goal scorer when we first saw him. And actually scant evidence... Um, that he was a goal scorer going back to his uh, other clubs, you know, going back to um, uh, his, his previous football. But um, it just goes to show that you can never write someone off and you can never just totally um, describe somebody as being this, that or the next thing because they're likely to, to prove you're wrong. And clearly he's got a very good attitude. Um, you know, he, he's, when I first saw him, I thought, you know, this is somebody who's, who's going to be, you know, a classic sort of target man, um, but, uh, you know, might struggle to, to find the net himself. But uh, he certainly made a big statement, and it's good to see. Tom, we touched upon Conor McLennan earlier on the show, but I know that's a goal or assist in each of his last five games now, albeit one of those assists was for Max Lowe's goal, which is barely one you could count, but, you know, it is. Uh, making a real impact on games is, I think, uh, to his credit, because we've seen other wingers, and Guy McHugh, Stephen, I think really comes to mind here, who have floated in and out of matches, maybe done some good stuff, but not really troubled the goal. He's great fun to watch, and... Um, it's not just his goals. He's he's getting goals now. He's got what six or seven assists for the season. He's only featured in eighteen league games, I think. So he's a real threat going forward. He occupies fullbacks. He goes past his man. He's got the tricks that Gary McKay Stephen has. Um, but it's his application that I think really makes him stand out for me. I mean, at the end, the tail end of last year. Um, there were a couple of games that he was coming off after 60, 70 minutes just because he was knackered. You know, he was covering his fullback. He was getting back and forward. And I think it looks like uh, Derek McInnes has worked on his game a little bit so that he, he's not just running on empty um, with 20 minutes to go because he's run himself into the ground chasing absolutely everything because he, he wants to be so involved. He, he looks like an unorthodox winger, but he he's, he goes past players. He covers his fullback. He's now uh, getting goals. He's getting to the byline. Um, his his crossing is improving, and he's gone from being a player who we feel can potentially change a game and could you know is someone you look to kind of in hope rather than expectation to now being one of the first. Uh, names on the team sheet uh, every single week and certainly since January the most consistent of the the attacking players that we've had in the in the starting 11. Yeah it seems to me Martin there's been a lot more noise maybe about guys like Lewis Ferguson or even Dean Campbell uh, to a lesser extent than Conor McLennan but Conor McLennan really has been the one to grab his opportunity with both hands. He has yeah and he's, he's benefited from you know you've seen guys like um, like Scott Wright and that go out on loan uh, Bruce Anderson obviously has got it alone as well. So McLennan has had that opportunity where there's been space in the team for him, and he's no. And we've spoke about you no know, guys that are misfiring. You no, know, um, Gary McKay Stephen has really you no know, has been you no know, 
cold rather than hot this season. Other guys haven't really grasped any chances they've got. So and this guy's Connors came in. Um, you know, fan, fans are willing, willing young players to do well for us, um, and he's he's performed well. You know, getting getting assists. You no, know, it was a, he, he was really good. You no, know, the the build up for the second goal yesterday was you no know, a really really nice bit of work. You know, beating beating the guys in the, closely in the box and cutting it back. You no, know, and as, as another it's another guy who you know you can you can be excited about seeing in the team, um, and that's what we want. I mean, you look at you look at next season. You know, you've got Connor McLean and you've got Bruce Anderson, you've got Scott Wright coming back, you've got Frank Ross coming back. There's no, there's still, there's Dean Campbell obviously as well. You know, there is a lot to be excited about the young players at Pataudry at the moment. Well, it's interesting you, you talk about the youth team. Um, last week I sat down with uh, Spanish footballers very own dandy Graham Hunter to have a blether about the Dons. Have a listen. A pleasure as always to welcome back Graham Hunter onto the show. Uh, Graham, thanks for joining us. Pleasure, dude. No problem. Graham might be slightly divorced from the current uh, right-wing shit show that we're living through here in the UK, being based in Barcelona, but uh, obviously his heart remains very much in the beach end at Petaudry. Uh, left side or right side or centre, Graham? Left side, mate, left side. Always the left side. OK, you will have seen a fair bit of the team this year. So just generally, what do you make of this kind of evolving and maybe younger Don's team? Well, look, I'm thrilled. Um, I, I don't know whether I should... No, I think I can name him. Um, I spent a pleasant <laughs> two or three hours in the pub with uh, Barry Robson just before the beginning of the season. And um, as anybody who's had to suffer me uh, will know, I very quickly get on my hobby horse and uh, buy out the misses that I think is appropriate. And, and it was a really enjoyable um, evening and, you know, we get on very well and I was, help- I was in the process of helping him go and study at... Uh, Mahara Honda, which is Atletico Madrid's training ground, is part of his, his coaching badges. And I said to uh, Barry then and there that, that one of the things that desperately wanted was to see the, the fruits of our academy uh, being given much more opportunity to prove themselves, be, to be put into the um, the area where you you you, you can. You can be tested, and therefore you can grow, because raw talent, which I trust very strongly, that with the, the guys who are in charge at the academy, I really trust very strongly that we're, that we're scouting well, that we've changed our orientation in terms of where we try to recruit. We've got the right ideas about what to teach them, um, what, what an academy is for. I think it's notable that we're they're getting not only a lot of support to send the youth teams away to, to test them in tournaments or against bigger foreign clubs. I think it's notable that we're getting invited back, which I think now that's a really important element of, of the fact that there are people recognising. I'm led to believe that Southampton asked if they could come and study our youth setup to learn from it. And therefore, if, if we've got this healthy growing, uh, well-managed scene underneath the first team, then while no team from Barcelona downwards can afford to think, well, we'll have 11 graduates <laughs> of our youth academy in the first team, and, and therefore still less Aberdeen, we need to sign, we need to show the, the wit that has characterised the majority of our signings 
since Derek McInnes took over and he's got a, you know, he's got a good staff, a really good staff. And therefore, while it's important that we, we pull off the, the clever things that we did with um, Ward and, and with Madders and, and now with Max Lowe and, you know, I, I, I look at this, the fact that we, I think overall we punch above our weight in terms of who we can get and why we get them. But my, my, my treaties then, my theory then, and it is now, is that unless we've got the opportunity to, to see Wright and the Rosses and Campbell and basically everybody that we think has promise in situations where they're going to be tested and maybe exposed and maybe have to learn again, unless we see that, then I'm not happy. And, and Barry made the point, well, you know, there are, there are things beyond, I'm not going to use his exact words, but there are things beyond what supporters want to see that the management team have to think about. And I accept that that's true. But my, my calibration of, of, of what I'd like to see differently would be slightly less of a worry about whether we do play some mad team from Kazakhstan in July or August. Probably July, um, because while I'd love to see a European progression, above anything else, the two things I want to see is us winning a trophy, and I want to see the the, the youth guys being given a proper opportunity to to show themselves. And therefore, my 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 big punch to to the to the argument or to the chat with, with Barry was by you know by mid season, I want to have seen many more younger players being tested out. And I think we've begun to see that. I'm, I'm relatively pleased with the... I mean, McKenna speaks for himself and we're now fighting to keep hold of him, but given the exposure Conor McLennan, Conor McLennan's had and Bruce Anderson, and latterly, obviously, very excitingly, Dean Campbell. But I'd like to see you know more of... Ethan and Frank Ross in due course, uh, right when he comes back. I, I just, I just like to see more of that. Not, not because it's some utopian uh, dream. Uh, Richard, and anybody listening will know that uh, where, whatever I'm stupid at, I, 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 I don't have this some mad dream that we can, you know, field eight or nine or ten youngsters in the Premier League and, and not get gobbled up. But I do want to see each of them. Uh, being given a proper opportunity on a regular basis in testing games such that we not only find out what their merit is, but we, we let them learn. And I'm more um, content this season with that element than I have been for a while. Do you recognise that? Do you, what? Well, I was just going to throw into the mix, there's a quote from the manager recently where he says it's quite easy for a youngster to get in and about this first team squad at the moment. You know, we keep quite a tight number of first team experienced professionals but it's difficult for them and it should be difficult for them to make that step up and become a regular indispensable member of the team obviously that speaks a lot about their character and their ability as well I think to take advantage of the chances they were given I think we've all we can all recognize young players who had a lot of talent quite recently maybe Carrie Smith is one that comes to mind for me certainly yeah never really truly grabbed the opportunities he were, he was given. And he did play a fair bit, albeit mostly off the bench, admittedly. But you look at a guy like Conor McLennan, he comes in and he changes a game when he's given an opportunity off the bench. And then from that, he progresses and becomes more or less an integral member of that first first eleven. Well, well I, 
okay, listen, I'm not picking an issue with the manager here, but I, I just want to see, I use the word calibration, Richard, deliberately, because I want to see a slight recalibration. I want to see it as part of our ethos, not that they're in and around the squad. I want them to play. And I want, and, and it's natural, without any hint of criticism, that, uh, you, you know, uh, fans or sponsors or media will have a desire for X that might be something that the manager's not quite so keen on because he has to think about keeping his job, he has to think about his CV, he has to look about, think about how bright he looks because, you know, let's, let's not prick about here. There will come a day when a club comes and knocks at Patoji's front door and says, we want to pay you money to take away your coaching team. It, it's just the nature of football. And, and therefore, you know, any coaching team will have a weather eye on what their future is, whether that's <laughs> digging in for another five or ten years or, or thinking, well, I'm, I'm going to do X or Y in my daily work because it's good for the club and good for the team, but I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to balance, I'm going to look for equilibrium about what's also positive for me and my CV. I see that as perfectly normal, perfectly normal. However, I also think it's normal from the side that the little calibration I'd like on that quote that you read out from Derek would be that I'd like to see an actual ethos that, that, that these that, that clutch of young players and, and I've got no dispute whatsoever because I think Conor McLennan has started 12 uh, Premier League matches this season again I, I don't find that an underwhelming number that's not a massive bench presence that he's been given and, and, I, and I think we've seen the progress and I think we're seeing accelerated I mean albeit that it's it's early. I think we're seeing accelerated progress from Dean Campbell, in my opinion. Anyway, I think we're talking nuances, and, and we're also only talking about my opinion, so, you know, I don't know what my language is supposed to be in this podcast and how restrained I'm going to be, but I'll just pull back from a, a standard bumper Graham phrase that I would use. So <laughs> you, you better tell me whether there's red cards for swearing or not in this podcast. No, no, not at all. Crack on. Thanks, Bob, for that. <laughs> Well, one evolution I think that has happened this season. Uh, yeah, well, whoa, 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 So you read me a quote. Yeah. And you talked to me about Cammy Smith. So listen, I've, you know, I've, I've sounded off about my perspective. What, what's yours on what, we, what we're seeing this season from the guys who've played a lot? I, I do think that we have given chances to youth before and they've not grabbed the opportunities. And I do think it's not just about the management team giving them those first team minutes, it is about them taking the opportunity. I mean, you would, surely that's the same at every club around the world in terms of ethos. I appreciate we're on, you know, slightly further down the food chain and maybe we should be being a bit bolder, being a bit more ambitious with the sort of minutes and game time that we give our young players, simply because we're seeing the struggle that every season we're, we're struggling to hold on to our key experienced players. You know, Kenny McLean last season, Johnny Hayes and Nam again the season before. It's going to be Graham. I think we all need to prepare ourselves for the gut punch that will be Graham Shinney um, leaving at the end of this season. I think we need to tighten those stomach muscles ahead of that. So, yeah, yeah maybe we should commit a bit more, given our place in the food chain. Um, I think, I think that's an, okay, I take that point of view, but I've also got, you know, a slight, a slightly different slant on it in that, you know, when you haven't initially flourished before one, were they given enough time? Broadly, I'm not, I'm not picking on a single or even a handful of instances. But 
What I also want it to be, I'm, I'm insistent on this point, I, I'd like it to be a policy whereby we're saying we recognise that we've, you know, we've reinvested in the academy. The academy is year by year producing better quality players and that, you know, that the proof part of the players' development isn't simply putting them in the first team at 18 and saying, are you good enough? That's part of the finishing process. So without now either of us getting bogged down on any individual player, and these are things I've learned over 20 years in Spain, um, because not all things are good here, but I've been well taught, particularly around the clubs where the academy really matters, which would be Espanyol, Barcelona, Villarreal, latterly Real Madrid. But anyway, Athletic, obviously, given that their, their academy has to service them really well. All, all my point is that I, I, I want to see it as being a central part of our policy that there is elongated time given to academy um, products not because we've got the magnifying glass on them, litmus testing them every single game. Oh, they're not going to make it. They are going to make it. It's actually part of their, their education. And it's part... Of, listen, we, we don't have a guy's Dieta, I don't think. But guys Dieta and Peter Beardsley, both of whom I guess you remember. I don't know how old you are. Mm-hmm. But like, you, you must have seen footage of them if you didn't see them live. Each of them have told me that there were stages in their career when... They weren't good enough for professional football. And guys, this was when, when he arrived at Valencia. And guys went on to play in two Champions League finals. They voted European midfielder of the year twice. And he's still Valencia's record transfer out to, to Lazio. And he tells me stories of when he was a kid at Valencia. First team players picking on him saying, what are you doing here? You're not fucking good enough. I said to Peter Beasley, you know, how did you end up Canadian football player from Vancouver? He said, well, at that stage, I wasn't good enough. <laughs> they both went on to be, you know, the best of their generation in their position. So I, I use that as, as, as a guide example. I'm, I don't, you know, I'm not offering that we've got a hidden Beardsley or Mendieta. But if they say that retrospectively, yeah, at 2021, I probably wasn't good enough. Then, then you can see what progression means and how it happens. And, and therefore, that's that's as a broad brush. That's that's what I'm asking. The recent game at Parkhead, uh, which finished nil nil. By the yeah. end of that game, you know we had played McKenna, who's 22, Lewis Bergson, who's 19, Conor McLennan, who's 19, and then Dean Campbell and Ethan Ross, who at the time were 17. All yeah. were on the pitch that day, and all of them, bar Lewis Bergson, had come through what you can call our academy or youth team, whatever you want to phrase it. Yeah. So. I think that has been a key point of evolution this season in yeah. terms of changing the average age of I've the been, team. I've been, I've been happier, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think another area where we have maybe adjusted things has been maybe a, a substitution of a bit of style, a bit of creativity, for a bit more steeliness. I mean, it's been shown in some wins in Glasgow which have been hard to come by in the last couple of seasons. And they obviously give a tremendous fill-up to the support, but they've been balanced with some squandering of home points that we haven't seen in previous seasons. Yeah, I mean, OK, that's a statement. So what's the question? Do I agree? I guess the question is that a truly successful team has got to have both of those elements, doesn't it? Aren't yeah, we just... no, no. Look, you're right, and, and it's all about personal interpretation. I, I, I thought we were pretty pretty rigid and pretty steely, and if I were to be given a magic wand, one of the things 
that I'd ask for would be slightly different, and, and this would be the case for quite some time, a different abo- approach to passing and what the ball is for. But I, I fully recognise that as we approach the sixth anniversary of the manager's appointment, we're, we're significantly better off than, than we were. Well, I've got a personal style point, and, and you talked about seeing maybe more flair or maybe more bursts of quality this season. But I, I, or a, you, you talked about a, a greater rigidity, a greater strength. I absolutely love that. And I can't remember when did we win at Ibrox in the league. I think that's now not last season, but the season before. Is it? I think it is. Yeah, towards the end, and we won what three times in Glasgow against against the Rangers um, this season. The nil nil draw at Parkhead in the semi final coming up. Yeah, that, that indicates to me that that there's a tremendous maturity if you look at the the way in which it just you know I lost all patience at the League Cup final that we lost. Pretty comprehensively to Celtic with um, you know Rooney in midfield and McGinn not starting or whatever, and yet the Scottish Cup final was an immediate progression tactically that one that we lost so cruelly so late on. I noticed that between Tony Dock and and Derek there has been a constant uh, search for how we can narrow the gap on on those two Glasgow clubs and what we can do to combat them, and in my view. We saw elements of it away to Burnley, where there there were parts of that game where we pretty comprehensively matched a, a group of players that at that stage were well regarded in the Premier League, and we didn't look out of place in any way. And if if you'll allow me, the thing I hope for and believe can happen is that it's it's a it's a virtual a virtuous circle that the more that the academy products are taught about possession and position and passing and, and maintaining the ball and comfort on the ball, the more that our playing style can adapt to become like that. Because there are times when I see, particularly at Pataudry, the ball lumped, um, uh, the ball not played from the back or not even played around at the back. You know, when the ball is passed back to Joe, all he sees is the player's his teammates' backs because it's just clearly an order that the ball's going to go long now. I'm not an outright critic of that, but my aspirations would include an evolution of style, style where, where that begins to change. But right now, particularly if you look at the point you made about our, our robustness in Glasgow and the, the sort of record number of um, away wins, it's, you know... It, there's little to there's little to complain about. That's for damn sure. But for Wall, particularly with the club you love, is a constant process of hoping to um, evolve and to advance, even if it's just incrementally. And and that's where, look, if if we if we can win the semi final and and lift the cup, then I think the, the, the that, that feeling of momentum this season, that feeling of of change. Quite frankly, for me, I'd love to finish first in the league, but we're now not going to. And therefore, second is, is a huge objective. But for me, by a long way, finishing second, third, or fourth, compared to winning the League Cup or winning the Scottish Cup, is, is, is for my taste, the importance of what victory means 
like your point about the nil-nil draw with that level of relative inexperience at Parkhead, the, the victories in the in the cup and in the league uh, I, I, uh, in Glasgow against Rangers, these things teach players and teach fans and teach the club about winning mentality and, and the and the, the benefit of a trophy right now would be absolutely gigantic. So. Yeah, I take your point, and I just like to see our ability to be very robust and very clever, added to by being maybe a little bit more happy on the ball and and, and more insistent and more play with more wit at home, so that our points total augments a little bit more. And and frankly, maybe we get a little bit more entertainment too, but. These are these are minor quibbles while we're going well. The aspect of it winning in Glasgow, though, it cannot be underestimated the importance of that. Because if you're going to win anything, you have to go there and win. And that's been the, the case for any team in Scottish football, whether it be Aberdeen, whether it be you know Dundee back in the 60s or the Hibs sides. You have to, to go to Glasgow and be able to win. Do you think that our chances of doing that in the semi-final have improved considerably based on the change of manager at Celtic? Not necessarily. I think that there was a natural end coming with Brendan. I think that if you were in the know, his intention was to leave at the end of the season. There had been a breakdown to some degree between him and Peter Lowell in terms of exactly how many shared objectives they had, whether it was a, a fallout or not, I wouldn't like to say. But, you know, I, I think that, you know, we've had our, we've had our difficult moments against Neil Lennon teams before. Um, I accept that you know that nil-nil draw at Parkhead in Neil Lennon's debut made it look as if we were on a, a relatively level footing. Has it looked under Neil Lennon that Celtic are as as powerful as maybe they looked at the beginning at the beginning of the season? No, not yet. I think, and this is interesting. This is guesswork. I honestly think Richard that the international break came quite nicely for Celtic. It gives a clever management team time to to reassess, time to uh, talk uh, between the the manager and those coaching staff that have stayed behind. Um, Kennedy, for example. It it gives them time to work with certain players who haven't away in international duty. It gives some players just a chance to get a breather and get fit again. I, I, I saw a bit of creakiness in the in the dog days of, of Brendan's time at Celtic, and therefore I, I, I wouldn't want to be going into this semi-final uh, either as a fan or as a journalist or part of the staff or one of the players thinking, "I right, listen, the wheels have come off. We'll, that's a big advantage to us. We'll, we'll fucking go beat him now." No, no, you know, it's, it's about it's about the aura as well, isn't it? Yeah, listen, I, I maybe I've just got a higher regard for Neil Lennon. Neil Lennon is a is a, is a guy who gets individual performances out of footballers. He's a guy um, who, while he, he may occasionally fall out of individuals, is definitely bright, charismatic, a motivator. It's my opinion that the, the change was due at Celtic. Had, had there been Brendan Rodgers, maybe the way to say this, had there been Brendan Rodgers um, with a, the same team, fitness, tiredness, whatever you like, form, as Celtic have got right now, I'd still be looking at the semi-final as an opportunity to win, not like, I hope we don't get beat. <laughs> that would have been my perspective. And um, if there are players, this is one of the things, because I am far away, as you pointed out, I live in Spain, 
haven't been at uh, Lennox Town since the big interview with uh, Craig Gordon, which is a few months ago now. So, uh, to say I'm wholly in tune with what's happening behind the scenes itself, it would, wouldn't be right. Um, I've watched some of their performances. I, they did not have a late winner um, in the last game before the international break. I think they scored very, very late to get three points, didn't they? At Dundee, yeah. So, look, all, all I'm saying is that uh, what... The, the thing I'd lean on a little bit more is having gone to Hamden and won the League Cup semi-final, having taken, you know, the victory in the Scottish Cup in a replay at Ibrox, uh, the nil-nil drop back. These are good things, and I, I think I think those are more relevant than than the change between Brendan Rodgers and Neil Lennon. What it'll, what part of what it'll come down to is. Has there been any sort of, not dissent, but are any of the players less focused than they were under Brian Rogers? I don't know. <laughs> Do one or two of them went away? I see that Lee Griffiths is back at training. How far off is he? You know yourself. Like I, I never take it ostensibly that any team we've got up against are automatically better than us are going to beat us. And therefore, the, into the mix comes what quality of refereeing display do we have? Because it's fair used to say we need a strong referee. It's somebody who's not going to go, hey, listen, sorry, you boys cut through again. We need somebody who's going to uh, make the correct calls. We need players in red who don't make mistakes at, at crucial times and who go into the, the contest absolutely thinking about their opposite. Man, I'm better than you. I'm going to give you a dog of a day today. And, and if we do that, we're closer than we've been for some time. I, I do hope that we can win it. I really do. But you know, their key players. Who's fit for them on the day? I think. Have they got an old firm match coming up this weekend? Yes. Well, let, let it be torrid. <laughs> <laughs> let it be. Let it be full-blooded and torrid. And, and as somebody who, when I work, puts a lot of effort into being objective, I'm going to go no further than that. But I think my code is quite clear, isn't it? Oh, I think so. I think so. Yeah, there you go then. There you go then. The season is about that semi-final now. I'd absolutely take your point that second, third, fourth, fifth in the league wouldn't matter against the trophy. It, it's all about the glory. And it's, I think it would be transformational for us, for our team of players, for the support. Yeah. You know, you've only got to look down at down to Edinburgh for an example of how much one win, one Scottish Cup win has absolutely transformed Hibs probably put 5,000 on their average gate and just yeah. giving them a belief that they can compete at that level as well It's, it's also, Richard, it's really important and I, I, I'm not claiming to be a guru or smart here but I'm just, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I've been around a long time, I've talked to oodles of winning players and winning managers, again okay I'll, I'll take another uh, I'll take another example when Xabi Hernandez, uh, for my money, still the greatest Spain player ever, was uh, coming through, people used to tell him, well, you're no good, you, you can be sold. The management of Barcelona told a friend of mine when I arrived in Barcelona in 2002, please find a club for him, sell him. And then when Rijkaard said to Xabi Hernandez, you're moving from the pivoted position, the number four position, and I'm going to put you at sort of inside right, right midfield. Xabi went, well, I... I I don't think I want to manage that boss. I'm not good enough. And here was a here was a guy who then developed the most brilliant passing passing range, the most brilliant match management, the most brilliant mentality that Spain have ever seen. And therefore, 
while I agree with everything you said and you used that transformational word, it's just a cracker. The big thing for me is is teaching. It, it's it's like a breakthrough for players. You lift a trophy and go, oh look, I can do this, and I want this again, and I can do it again. And hey, you over there on the side of the changing room, or hey, you in the on the on the in the dressing room, on the training ground, work harder. And they're at each other, pushing each other. That trophy, you know, superb for the fans, a payback for the hard work that McInnes and Doherty have put in. Really important for the chairman, our sponsors who've not only stuck by us, but we've taken in an oil sponsor at a time of downturn. All these things are true, and, and you know, it, it would make me go delirious with joy. <laughs> I mean that as an understatement. But, like, the key thing is what it would do to our squad. As an aside, I've got to say, well done for referring to a defensive midfield position as a number four and not the number six. Just thank you for that. <laughs> anyway, uh, because obviously you're sent at half some five and six because you're sent at half some McLeish and Miller. That's just how it is. Anyway. There you go, there you go, correct. Anyway, Graham, thank you very much for your time. Um, you know, we know that you're always plugged into what's happening at Pataudry, even though you might be a couple of thousand miles away. Um, <clears throat> you going to make it back to see us again this season or... Yeah, hopefully twice I expect to be at the semi-final and then, frankly, I expect to be at the final. I'm betting on an underdog there because Celtic are more powerful and they have more resources. And they've shown this season that at their very best they can cope with us. But I believe that we've changed. I believe that the, the things we've talked about, the learning of beating Rangers has been important. There was a day, um, I think the New Year's game, when Rangers worked and ran Celtic off the pitch and 1-1-0, but my memories it's one I haven't checked before this podcast but you know they were significantly better I want that to be us I want it to be our attitude I want it to be our day and it can be so with any luck I'll I'll, um, I'll be at Hampton twice before the season ends and I'd love to be at Petodio before the season ends but I'm commentating on La Liga every weekend and therefore yeah. it's blooming it's blooming difficult and in midweek. So it's a little bit difficult, but hey, fingers crossed. Well, we'll have the beers and tap for you on May the twenty seventh, uh, should that come to pass, and we all hope it does. Graham, thank you very much for your time. Up the mighty dandies. So as you heard, Martin, Graham strongly believes that we should we should be putting even more faith into a youth development than we have been this season. Treating it pretty much like a, a central club ethos, if you like. But there's always going to be a trade-off, isn't there? Ultimately, do you think guys like you or me are going to accept that possible drop-off in form, league placings, cup final appearances for the sake of a more homegrown side? In the short term, I mean, but how how you define short term is the is the thing. Um, you know, do you do you go with young? Do you, I mean, I don't know if you would go if you go with young, a young team starting very from very at the very start of the season, try and bed in, you know. A new, not necessarily a new first eleven, but you know, six or seven maybe younger guys, um, and you give them sort of ten, fifteen games. If it's not going right, then it's probably not the young lads that will take the take the flak. It will be the manager, um, and that's where you know it gets tricky. Um, I would love to see, um, you know, I know we'll never have that, but I'd love to see you know a a, a young a young Aberdeen, Aberdeen side well, full of full of you know young Scottish lads. Doing well because youth po- the youth policy is is something that we should be we should be aiming for and we should be very proud of. We know we've got some some really really talented young players there. Um, I think that 
certainly, like I said, there's so much to look forward to. But if it goes on and you know you start finishing fifth or sixth by but with with a team of with a team full of younger lads, then people will start to rumble. And um, unfortunately, it is you know it's results based. You know, a lot of people don't care who's in the team as long as we're winning. How you play the long playing the long game isn't something that people really do in football. And um, you know, as you see with you know, some of the clubs that you know hire and fire managers going at, like it's going out of fashion. It's been interesting a couple of times recently in the SBFL, Tom. I'm thinking Hearts last season, Motherwell this season. At points where they've been at the lowest ebb, where they've been struggling, they've thrown some of the kids in and they've swam rather than sank. But in the Hearts example, obviously this season, they've gone out and completely changed their ethos and brought in a whole new team. Yeah, I, I mean, to some extent, I think that's the, the kind of sink or swim thing is is a little bit where we are at the moment. I, I mean, uh, McKenna only really got thrown in because uh, we'd, we'd had real problems with Motherwell. You know, they'd in the cup what seems like a lifetime ago um a couple of years ago uh, and um uh but mclennan really because of injury because of inconsistencies uh, why he's had his opportunity so i think the, these guys that have kind of come in and, and made the position I mean, even like lewis ferguson who i just every time i see him i just cannot believe he is only like relatively recently 19 just physically doesn't seem possible um I don't think anyone thought when he was signed that he was going to have as much game to, you know, let alone the the impact that he's had. I think nobody thought that he was going to get quite as much, be, be quite as pivotal a, a player as he uh, has become, considering who else we we brought in um, in the midfield with with a bit more experience. Um, and I think that we have started with guys like Bruce Anderson, who on the first game of the season was kind of pitched in in hope rather than expectation um that those guys who who have swum when they've when they've been been thrown in the deep end um if i'm not mixing too many metaphors have have given a platform for the likes of dean campbell um ethan ross has been kicking around around the around the outskirts um and these 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 youngsters i we i think we have the youngest Start uh, of um, of starters this season. We've got the youngest squad, and I think that the because there must be more confidence in the the quality of player that we're producing, then I think we'll hopefully see more of it in the in the coming six months in the coming year. And if we can add, I mean, this season I would say that the the actual transfer policy has been. Not quite disastrous, but it's been suspect to say the least. Whereas some of the younger players and the players that we kind of hoped would be ones for the future have been the ones that really picked up the the gauntlet that's been thrown down, and they've kind of propelled us into where we are in the league and and what may be what will be at the very least a a, a par performance for a season and may well be something really special. Well, that uh, may be something special. Hinges on the game at Hamden on Sunday. The tie, which are since we won at Ibrox in the quarterfinal replay, has been pivotal to our whole, whole season. The game against Celtic. Now, missing Graham Shinney, Derek is obviously a massive, massive blow. He has been absolutely integral to the team. In fact, we worked out that uh, since. Missing last season's Scottish Cup semi-final through suspension, he'd played every single competitive minute for Aberdeen until 
missing this year's Scottish Cup semi-final. Um, it, he provides not just leadership, but he's uh, he's capable in a number of different midfield roles, isn't he? He's he's really key to this Aberdeen team. He is, and I think he's the face of the Dons nowadays. I think that would be fair to say, and you just said it, that uh, he doesn't miss matches. And so what do Aberdeen do in his absence? Uh, you know, he does give uh, Derek McInnes such flexibility. You can play him uh, at left back, you can play him across midfield, and you can have him do a number of different things in that midfield area. Um, so this isn't going to be easy, uh, but others are obviously going to have to step forward and you know take on a bit of responsibility. Um, it's not going to be easy at all against Celtic at Hamden and that environment. But I do think that what has happened, you know, especially with, with the, the win against Rangers, especially going there and doing it when maybe people thought the chance had been lost. Aberdeen fans probably didn't think the chance had been lost, but I'm sure a few in Glasgow did. Um, you know, maybe that can, can rub off on the players. And at some point, they've got to beat Celtic in a game like this. I mean, it's not as though every time... I mean, I remember that final, which actually was the last final I attended in person before leaving the Scottish football scene. I remember thinking that time that, that Aberdeen were going to do it. And, um, you know, I thought they played really well for 60 minutes of that game. Now, it's Brendan Rodgers Celtic. Uh, it was Brendan Rodgers Celtic then. It's Neil Lennon Celtic now. Um, without Shinny, you know, could you, uh, if you were a betting person, which I'm not, put your money on Aberdeen? Probably not, but at some point they are going to do it. And why not now when, you know, Celtic are, are, are just a bit more fragile, I think, than they were when, when Brendan Rodgers had them going to uh, the semi-finals and finals and, and winning, in most cases, with relative ease. So, Tom, we can't directly replace. We don't have another Graham Cheney, but how would you go about tweaking the side to accommodate for his loss? Would you uh, put Stevie May in the park to become that kind of link man with Sam Cosgrove? Um, I would... Be inclined to. I mean, I, I think the fact that we saw Gleason at the end of the game yesterday would suggest that he's. A, 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 I, I personally, I would go with a bit more cover rather than trying to put, a, a, or certainly trying to start with a, a, another a more attacking option. Um, I'm, I mean, from what I've seen of Gleason, I quite liked him. I don't know why he I mean, he he doesn't seem to get even fleeting substitute appearances so perhaps doesn't turn it on in training the way that, that he might but it's got a decent pedigree if ever there's a game that you know if you can't get up for this sort of game you really shouldn't be here um so personally i would be a little more conservative not least because i think that if you've watched the way celtic have played in in recent games they've not been able to break down teams the way that they were with Brendan Rodgers' side. You know, Rodgers' side were able to hit teams incredibly quickly on the counter-attack. They could move um, right to left. They had, they always had runners that could pull defences apart. And, and they still had the same personnel, but they just don't seem to have clicked the way that they they did seem to... I mean, they, they've, they've lost the air of invincibility. That's not to say they're not still a very good team and have very good players and will not be overwhelming favourites. But I think that if you can make it a, a battle as uh, Livingston did yesterday, as uh, you know, as Rangers with ten men did uh, did a week ago, even as, as Dundee did um, a couple of weeks back, when it's more attritional and hit them on the counter attack they are vulnerable to that, or certainly much more vulnerable to that than they have been in a very long time. 
Yeah, two recent home games for them probably <clears throat> make that point very well, uh, Martin. It's the game against us where Dean Campbell came on at half time then and, and replaced James Wilson. And we were more circumspect, but we did actually create more chances playing that way. Then yesterday, they, they couldn't break down a Livingston team who have obviously um, been far better at home than they have been away from home. So would you bring Dean Campbell in to start? The heart kind of says yes, but the head probably says no. Um, and I would go with the first. I would probably prefer, go with the first option that you gave for. You know, you, may, you put me in with Cosgrove, and you probably go with Gleeson. Um, but you know, in saying that, as as Tom says, there, no, they've they are the, the air of invincibility is gone. You know, uh, Neil Lennon, despite having exactly the same players, um, you know, that the Celtic team is is not you know anywhere near as daunting a, a task as it was you know two three months ago. Um, you know they were, they were, they were actually quite impressive to watch at times under Rogers. Um, I don't think you could ever say that under for any of the Neil Lennon side. A poor result yesterday for them. Um, you know, but and I know people will you know, will excuse it and say you no, know, the league's won. They're kind of you know, they're in coasting mode and stuff like that. But you know they want to, they want to win at home in front of however many people were there yesterday. Um, so I, w- I wouldn't accept that at all. You know they're wanting to win every game because they're professional footballers and they're professionals. They're just they're they're beatable, um, and I, I I would I wouldn't want to go in there, you know, gun ho, trying to kind of you know trying to cu- kind of carve them open things like that. But I do think an air of caution would be the sensible thing because we can we can get them. We have players that can get to them. It's just finding finding the right moments and play being patient uh, and taking taking those opportunities because it, it's one of those games I think will come down. To keep to having these key moments where you know you get a half chance or the, a, a, a brief moment, a good play, and we get forward, and we need to be taking those chances because you know we didn't really do ourselves justice in the game in December at Hamden. Hamden. Um, I think you know, this time it's very important. I mean, this is the season rests on this really. If we're being totally honest, though, this is this is now the biggest game of the season. No, it's without question. Um, but I am. I mean, I wouldn't say I'm unbelievably confident, but there's so much there's so much to look forward to this because we have got a, I think we have got a really fantastic chance of of getting something against them. Yeah, Derek. Whilst acknowledging that they have players that can hurt us, better players than we have, generally speaking, and whilst they're overwhelming favourites, I think that's maybe the right phrase to use. That air of invincibility maybe has gone. Brendan Rodgers had an incredible record in domestic cup ties. Whereas Neil Lennon, his previous stint as Celtic manager, has several short defeats to his name. Yeah, he does. Uh, and he didn't particularly like Hamden as a venue in the past when he was Celtic manager. And you're right. I mean, the, the list is, is fairly long of, of Celtic failures in games like this. But um, I've got to know Neil Lennon a little bit or worked with him a few times on a, on a broadcasting level. And... Um, I don't think we should underestimate him either while saying that, while rightly pointing out some of those failures, because I think he will have an awful lot to prove in this game. And uh, I think at times he, he can be a very inspirational manager for, for players uh, who are, are working with him. So um, my view is Aberdeen need to go in here and, and not go gung-ho, but not be passive either. There's that sort of middle ground where you, um, you, know, you, you, you try to impose your will on the opposition, knowing that you're not going to have, um, you know, the, the lion's share of possession of the ball, but it's about being clever when you do have it and being quick 
when you do have it, I always think at hand and, uh, and, and not, um, you know, dilly-dallying too much in, in that regard. But, uh, but having a plan for, for knowing that Celtic will have more of the ball, uh, but then when you have it, being able to strike really quickly and, and maybe catch them by surprise and, and perhaps find some sort of glass jaw on their defence. Not going to be easy, but as I said before, at some point Aberdeen will beat Celtic in a game like this. So, so why not this time in the semi-final? Why not indeed? Anyway, that's our show for you this week. My huge thanks to Tom Watts. Tom, thanks. Thank you very much. To Derek Ray. Thank you very much. And to Martin Clunas. Always a pleasure, Richard. Always a pleasure. So we'll check back in with you next week following the game at Hamden, either in a state of high delirium or predictable disappointment. Let's hope it's a form. Good night.